Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Let's just do it, Stu. <laughs> I've been waiting for you to say that for a long time. <laughs> do, we have to edit, do we have to edit that out? I don't think we, I don't think I'm going to edit that out. I think I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> so it's nice to see you. Uh, we had to push back a few couple of days because I was at a birth, which it's going to be the focus of today's podcast. Uh, when we get to it, I'm going to talk about that birth because okay. there's so much to it. And I think it's uh, it'll be red meat for a lot of our listeners. So I think it'll be. Um, it'll be red meat. Yeah. I don't think I know that saying. Red oh, it's meat. just yeah. Red meat means like like they'll gobble it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. I think that's what it means. Yeah. So um, gobble, you are, gobble. You are, you are going to come to LA. I think by the time this podcast plays, you'll actually be in LA. There's a yeah. little little snafu. There's been a little snafu with our uh, production about about these um, these holidays. holidays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we didn't realize that. So we're gonna get a bunch of podcasts hopefully in the backlog and maybe release more than one a week for a couple of weeks or something like that because i did uh two podcasts recently well three actually with uh um some british podcasters one was aaron fung from uh, better birth uk mm -hmm. and she's on instagram at, at better birth uk and we did a whole podcast over an hour on breach and the second one which will come out later after probably around christmas on twins but the breach one's already out and then I had a very nice conversation with Sally Ann Beresford, who has a podcast with a strange name. It's called Ultimate Guide to Being a Birth Partner. It's kind of a long name for a podcast title. <laughs> I think it's a book too, right? Yeah, I think it might be a book. Right. She's yeah. only, this is only like, she's only like 15, 16 episodes. So maybe this mm -hmm. is good for her. Mm -hmm. But I love doing both podcasts. And you know why I love doing both podcasts? Because you like to talk. I like to hear British people talk. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah, even my uh, even my uh, Siri on my Waze app is British. You selected it that way. Oh, actually, you know what? Actually, she's Australian, but it's for, the, for us dumb Americans, it's all one. You know, it's all sort of the same. <laughs> anyway, so those will be coming out. So people should look up, especially Erin uh, is a great Erin's a great person to follow on Instagram. She's got a lot of energy. She does a lot of good stuff uh, and she's um, at Better Birth UK. Okay, awesome. So yeah, I just had the one delivery, which we'll talk about. You've obviously- How was, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was uh, probably the worst one I've ever had. Oh. And that includes last year when we didn't even have one. Oh no. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I wasn't uh invited. Because of your status? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, I actually, actually, somebody asked me, and I, I, I wrote something. I said, um, I looked up this word, and it seems to fit well for the vaccinated who fear the unvaccinated so much. They want them to get the vaccine so they can feel protected from the vaccine they got, which isn't protecting them. Right. Right. So... <laughs> and, the word, and the word is, and I'm not meaning this in a harsh way, but it just came to my mind because... This is, I sort of felt like be, I was being discriminated against. And the word is bigot. Yeah. 
Yeah. And bigotry. And I looked up, uh, you know, it, it just stuck in my, I looked up the definition of it. And here's the definition of it. A person who is obstinately or unreasonably attached to a belief, opinion, or faction, especially one who is prejudiced against or antagonistic towards a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. Mm. Yeah. So the, yeah. So I was not really welcome because not because most people at the gathering cared, but because there was one or two fearful people at the gathering who seemed to have like all the gravitas and people just bent over for them. Yeah. And um, I don't want to say any more about it because I think yeah. there's a lot of people out there who know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, there was a meme that I posted or I saw today that said uh, from families that were half, you know, some were vaccinated somewhere and they had great Thanksgivings. They hugged and they shared glasses of wine and they did everything right because, because there isn't anything to fear when people aren't sick. You know, if I had been infected with AIDS, I'd have been welcomed at my Thanksgiving dinner, but because I'm perfectly healthy and not vaccinated, I wasn't. So yeah, I hear I you. I wasn't going to talk about it. It's probably already by the time this comes out three, four weeks ago, I've already forgotten about it. <laughs> but I think next year I'm going to be more proactive, Liz, and I'm going to plan my own Thanksgiving. I'm not going to rely on the people that I used to rely on for the last 65 years. Yeah, I get that. Right. Well, I did. T I did tell our listeners in the last um, our last podcast that I would give you an update about my COVID test that I was going to take in order to go to my family dinner. So. Um, it is called, let's see, BD, yeah. way David, Veritor, V-E-R-I-T-O-R, yeah. um, at-home COVID-19 test. So that's what I took. You have the same thing? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, mean, I know which test you're talking about. Yeah. So um, I have to ask my cuz, I'm sorry. I think she must have ordered it on Amazon so I could tell you guys where she got it from. But if you look that up, you'll be able to find it. I have a feeling it was Amazon. Um, and you can only use it with a um, Apple phone. You can't use it with an Android phone. But it was very straightforward. Um, they had little videos that you pushed play and it would tell you what to do in the next step. It was very organized. Um, I had the results in 15 minutes. I would say the only thing that I didn't love is that you put in your personal information and it's electronic. So um, there's a benefit to that because if you're participating with things, you could send somebody a screenshot or something like that um, and it has your name on it. And so that's better than some of the at-home tests that you know it, they just are kind of like a pregnancy test and it, that wouldn't work. So um, I would say it was very easy to use. It worked for what I needed it for. It made people feel more relaxed, which I kind of just like, if that makes you feel relaxed and there's no sweat off my back to do it, then I'm going to do it. But I think what I mentioned last week, what would have made sense was for everybody to get tested, <laughs> not just me. But, you know, I just, I just didn't, I just, I just didn't feel like pushing it. I just felt like just kind of going with the flow because I've got enough to to worry about with my family right now um if, if people could yeah. see me they would have seen me 
like giving <laughs> this exasperated up. sound. Yeah, of like, <laughs> of course, that would make the most sense at all if yes. they want tested because they're just as likely to shed as anybody else. But here's the question I have for you about this app or whatever it is that you do. Uh-huh. If you test positive, does uh, somebody contact you or start knocking on your door or anything like that? Well, I was negative, so I don't know for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think people who are a little nervous about it be, you, your results oh. being in the system and all of that stuff, then, you know, obviously, anytime you test, right? Anytime you test, unless you just do the at-home thing where you just get to see it yourself. But if you go someplace to get tested, that information would be kept. Too. Not if you go to your private physician. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. Right. If you go to your, I mean, I don't do them in my office, but there are offices around that certain doctors and almost every pediatrician's office actually, I think does one. And I don't think, I don't think there's a reporting clause that says they have to report that would sort of be a violation of the doctor patient relationship, which of course is being violated all the time. We'll see how long that lasts before they um, change the definition about that. Right. Well, they change, they're changing, the, they just changed the definition of uh, herd immunity. They changed the definition of what a vaccine is. Yeah, yeah, this is this is what they do. Then when their narrative doesn't fit what's existing, they just change the ex- change what's existing. So yeah, uh, so I am on my way back to LA. And yay. I think, uh, yay, and we have, I'm not forever. Don't no, get excited, people. Um, but I, Stu and I are talking uh, briefly about doing a live. So hopefully we'll have a little live while we're sitting next to each other and you guys can, um, you guys can participate in us being next to each other. And yeah, not... We'll have to borrow someone's fireplace. <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have one. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get cracking because uh, All right. I've, got a, I've got several letters. Today's podcast is really going to be just catching up on reader letters. And I'm I I promised, I promised weeks ago to get to Jordan's letter and I'm going to get to it. Um, but I'm going to read three or four other letters first. Um, so the the first one is from, uh, Sophia in Greece. Ooh. Yeah. I think this is our first letter from Greece. So it says, dear Dr. Stu, I've just listened to the I don't consent episode of your podcast. That was Bliss's terminology. And I was moved by your reading of the article in the Nuremberg Code. I'm an independent midwife working in Greece and that and they, excuse me, and the government is making it very difficult or expensive to work if you're not vaccinated. I was wondering if they remove the experimental status of the COVID vaccine, can they then make it mandatory? Or does the clause of not giving any medication without consent or coercion still stand? And if they are doing it, are they acting illegally? And can we fight out our stand from that corner? I hope you understand my question. I'm getting a bit emotional and very frustrated with the situation. So I don't always make the best sense. You made good sense to me. And we understand we get emotional and not so level-headed about it too we get it anyway thank you for your podcast and all the information and passion you send out so my response to her was typically short but responsive and i said sophia apparently governments can be as totalitarian and unethical as the governed allow mandates destroy medicine and trust if there's any trust left use of coercion in medical treatment violates every ethical code whether the treatment is experimental or not yeah 
So the best answer to your question is yes, it would still violate moral behavior, but since when has that ever stopped authoritarian zealots? We have a constitution and a bill of rights that we can fall back on in our country and may provide us some protection. Many countries do not. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they can do whatever they want. And if the people will take it, they'll just keep doing it. So ultimately, in some of these countries, including ours, there's going to be civil disobedience and civil unrest, or they'll be you'll be living in a totalitarian lockdown society like one of our other writers tells us, if we get time, we'll go to that one too, what's going on in some of the countries like Australia and New Zealand, um, and Canada for that matter. Uh, any thoughts on that, Bliss, or just pretty much straightforward? No, I, uh, I agree. I feel like you and I have talked about this so many times that I don't really have anything new to add on to that one. Okay, but so I'm excited that we got a letter from Greece. Well, here's a letter from Kelsey, and she's talking about Canada. So let's see what she has to say. Okay. Kelsey says, hey, Dr. Stu, I did one of your breach workshops in Kona, Hawaii with Go Midwife a few years back. I love those. I, she Unfortunately, Go Midwife moved to Montana, which is not a bad place either. But it was always nicer when I got to go to Kona than I've been Bozeman. But yeah, <laughs> um, I'm not I'm now working in Nashville as a CPM. But I have a COVID vaccine question for you. I am currently breastfeeding my daughter. She's eight weeks old and we are wanting to see my family in Canada, but they are requiring vaccination to go into Canada. Up until this point, I haven't gotten vaccinated and haven't really wanted to, but feel like I'm in a bit of a hard spot and finding it hard to find good info for the vaccine and breastfeeding. I think we've covered that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice or good decisions, I mean, or good studies or info that would help me as I make my decision? I know it's a hot topic, so I understand if you don't, but I know you've been posting about it so some, so I thought I would reach out. Thanks, Kelsey. So I said to Kelsey, of course, um, she's right about what I mean. I'm of the belief that that in the, in that age group, unless there's a pressing reason, and I know that I'm really going different from a lot of my colleagues because I keep hearing more and more stories from friends of mine who go to doctors that I've trained with or used to be in my office or whatever else who are just so pro the vaccine and when they tell the doctor that they're not vaccinated the doctor like her whole demeanor changes when they find out they're not vaccinated so I, I but I, I don't think there's any reason why a 25 year old woman who's breastfeeding should get vaccinated it's just don't I don't see it making any sense whatsoever except for this situation, which is here what I said. Hi, Kelsey. So many of us face this Sophie's choice. Maybe that's a little dramatic, but it's almost, if people know what I'm talking about the movie Sophie's Choice, so you know what I'm talking about. I am no, and if you don't know, you, you should look it up because it's a, it's a, it's a no-win scenario. I am no expert on this topic, so I only have opinions. While visiting family is what helps give life meaning, each of us must decide on our own cost and benefit. Risks of the vaccine are small, but definitely real. And once taken, it is not reversible should they occur. I do not trust the data nor any organization spouting the quote, safe and effective mantra. They just don't know. Whether they believe their propaganda or not is irrelevant to the question of, is it safe for me and my child or my baby? Since this is admittedly unknown, it gets back to deciding for your family what's the priority. 
people allowed to are allow people are allowed to arrive at different conclusions. One common sense solution, depending on the urgency to get to Canada, is to postpone visits and wait for more legitimate data from trusted sources to come out. Hope this is a bit helpful. I know by your note you you know there is no definitive answer as of today. And then I wanted to say we really have thoughtful listeners. Melissa and I are grateful for your trust in asking us these questions. Yeah. Um, listen, if you want to go see your family, and that's Canada's rule, then you have to decide is seeing family worth getting vaccinated for? Or maybe your fa vaccinated family should come and visit you in Nashville. Right. <laughs> unless, they're afraid, unless they're afraid to come visit you because you're not vaccinated. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's irreversible. So it's a, it's a, it's a uh, decision that only you can make um, what feels like it's important to you. I think you and I both have been uh, very clear about where we stand personally on that. And it's unfortunate um, that sometimes our relationships are affected by our choices, but um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I personally, what? I was gonna say, I personally don't really have any problem with getting a vaccine. Like there are many other vaccines. If I felt like, um, you know, I was in danger or I was getting as much pushback as I am now, I think I probably would take them, you know, but this particular one, I just, it doesn't, and when, when weighing out the cost, not cost, yeah, cost benefit analysis ratio, um, to me, it just hasn't, it hasn't influenced me to want to get the yeah, vaccine. I can't, I don't understand the, the, the rush to get it for people in an, specifically in an age group, even people who are older or more at risk, this was rushed to market. It's not been properly tested. It's still under experimental youth authorization. Um, it has a very high VAERS reporting rate of side effects and morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. There are more deaths reported from this vaccine in the year that it's been out than all other vaccines in the market to get put together over the last 20 or 30 years. Wow. Far more. I mean, we last, at last time I looked, it was like at 16,000 and that's with bears. Are all deaths reported to bears? Probably not. Are deaths that are happening, you know, in old people, sometimes not attributed to the vaccine, even though it might've been the vaccine that triggered it. I don't know how they count them, but the idea that you need to take this vaccine to go visit your family is, is Again, it gets back to the thing we discussed at the very beginning about the logic behind it. They're vaccinated, right? Now, if the government says you can't go into the country, that's a Canadian government problem. And the people of Canada can decide to bend over and take it if that's what they choose to do. But you don't have to go to Canada. You can say to your family, listen, I really want to see you. We want to see my baby. Come visit me. Yeah. Because we, yeah. Are the, we the unvaccinated, are not fearful of the virus or the vaccinated. The vaccinated are fearful of the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and the virus. <laughs> so it makes no sense, okay. Lots of fear, got it. Okay, I got a couple letters on breach. And okay. uh, that, you know, that's my, one of my favorite topics. So this one is from, uh, I think, Kristen in Albany, New York, right? So we're coming from all over the places. Um, 
Uh, I just wanted to thank you both. I attended your breach workshop in Montana last month and asked and had asked you there, how many breach births would I have to do to feel like I was proficient? And mm. you told me most providers would feel confident after five. And I was shocked because I had done five myself and, and had been in attendance for about 20 and didn't feel confident. And I just yeah. wanted to say to Kristen that if she heard me say the number five, uh, that was incorrect. I wouldn't. It's not a number I would ever say. I usually say 20 to 30. So I don't know where the five came from. I, I might have misspoke. Um, so that I want to clear that up for her and for everybody else. Uh, and then you really, you know, at, at every breach delivery, you have your skills. You're always going to be a little on edge. It's just the way it works. But I think people are on edge at head down deliveries. I think that everybody's got a little bit of adrenaline flowing during that period of time because there's that crucial time where the baby comes out and the minute that it takes a breath and starts moving around and making its noises, then everybody, then the room suddenly just lightens up immensely. But until that happens, there's a little, uh, what, what would you call it? A little cloud or a little echo chamber of, of silence in the room? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I try really, really hard not to, um, to be worried. So it's something I work really hard on. Um, Even inside? Yeah, I work really hard on it. I'm not saying I'm perfect, um, but I, I uh, especially if everything is going normal, you know, if there's, if we're having some decelerations or there's some complication that's happening or some previous situation, you know, I might be a little bit more hesitant or, you know, concerned about things, but um it's, it's something that I, I interviewed a midwife when I was in school about, um, you know, advice that she had. And she said that it was really important that we not bring our past trauma into the birth room. And so it's something that I'm very, very conscious about. Um, but I know what you're talking about. I know that feeling. And I, I've been there with other providers, you know, who I think um, I can tell are really worried. Um, so... Yeah, I try not to show it outwardly, but I, I can feel it inwardly, right? Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, till, wait till we get to our uh, twin birth story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> after, taking, after taking your workshop and practicing the hands-on maneuvers and learning some of the facts and wisdom about breach, I felt so much more confident afterwards. Can't encourage people enough that want to learn this skill to take a course. I don't teach that many, but I teach maybe four or five a year but the Breach Without Borders people are prolific. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere all the time. So look into Rick Safriz's uh, Breach Without Borders. Uh, and take a course, even if you don't plan on doing breaches primarily, taking the course, you'll, everyone's gonna get that surprise breach and you're gonna know what to do and it's gonna make all the difference in the world. And I get emails like this all the time from people who, well, I'll keep reading. I have since had a second twin come Frank Breach on Halloween and felt so confident and his birth went so smoothly. And then just today had the pleasure of supporting a woman from New York City who could not find support for a vaginal breech birth in the city due to the fact that after a failed ECV, the OB wrote in his notes that the baby was footling breech and he didn't recommend a home birth. Okay. This recommendation apparently scared off all the New York City midwives, even those who had breech experience. Mm. What do I say about term babies and footling breech? that that you can't really tell it's a, it's it, footling breach means the baby has to be standing up 
Right. There just isn't room really for mm -hmm. a baby to be standing up at term. Um, that means the hips and knees are both extended and that's not the case. So what he's talking about is the feet probably below the butt, but the baby's right. in the somersault or the complete breech position. Um, and I don't think that he probably, and maybe he's a home birth supportive person, but any OB not recommending a home birth never does, never surprises me. <laughs> okay. Um, her midwife called me and asked me if I would attend her. I said, yes, if she would come to Albany and birth in our birth bed and breakfast. Nice. They have a birth bed and breakfast in Albany that we have above our office and invited her midwife to drive up for the labor. And I would guide her through the birth so she could have experience and breach too. I like that. See one, do one, teach one. Right. Yeah. Love it. Uh, for the future. I did ask her when does this particular OB recommend home birth and why does his recommendation matter? Anyway, the, he, she didn't answer. She's got a little, the shrug, the shrug emoji. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the end of the story is that she had a very unusual and long labor. Most of the time contractions were 10 to 15 minutes apart, but she progressed. And I kept in my head that you have a hundred percent success rate for breaches in multiples. And this was her second baby. There was times I wasn't sure she would ever finish laboring, but she did birth vaginally, a seven pound baby boy, incomplete breach, and I couldn't be happier for them. And for myself as a provider to actually feel confident in these skills, as you should, Kristen in Albany. Thanks again for your passion and knowledge. I'll let you know when I open my breach in Twin Center. <laughs> nice, I love it. Yeah, let me know. New York, New York is not on the high on my, uh, I wanna move their list, but no, you never know. I would come. I would come and teach for sure. You know, okay. I saw this. I saw this post on Beback Facts yesterday or the day before, and uh, she had copied some comments um, from it from online. And what it said was that this person had transported from a home birth, and they ended up getting a cesarean and the doctor gave her a J incision intentionally so that she wouldn't try to have another home birth. Is that crazy? Well, it's crazy that, that he would admit that because that's negligence and that's actionable. Yeah. So how do we know that he gave her a jade incision for that purpose or he gave her a jade incision because he had to give her a jade incision? I wonder about that. Yeah. But if he he's an idiot. Or she. Or she. And he or she is also cruel. Yeah. I was like, unbelievable, but doesn't it's shock me. Term singleton head down fetus that you need to do a J incision. So, yeah. um, okay. Another breach letter from Kelly. Got a lot of K people. Kelsey, <laughs> Kristen, and Kelly. Um, and this is from Kelly in, uh, where's Kelly? Well, I don't know. Kelly... It probably says here. Um, well, let's read it and see what it says. Uh, Hi, Dr. Stu. I just wanted to reach out and first say thank you. I listened to your podcast the month leading up to my most recent birth, and I credit it partly with why my birth went so smoothly and peacefully. You can't see, you can't see Stu's. <laughs> I don't even know how to explain that one. But <laughs> I'm, boun I'm bouncing happily. It's like a, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and this has been the Birthing Instincts podcast for today. We'll we'll see you next time. <laughs> you want to end on a high note? There's a high note to end on, right? Okay, one week, one week ago today, I gave birth to my third son, who happened to be a surprise footling breech birth. We had him at home, and he was my second H-back. These things can be done. 
Yes, I love it. My first son was born as a traumatic, unnecessary emergency C-section. Oh, God. My second was a redemptive HVAC. And now my third was a surprise breach HVAC. As soon as we knew he was breached, I had an overwhelming sense of calm, which I attributed to listening to so many positive breach stories on yours and other podcasts. I felt prepared and calm, and he was out after two easy pushes, and that was after a quick two-hour labor. Nice. Right. They wouldn't have been able to get you on the table and section you fast enough, so this, this is great. Perfect. That was sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, her birth. The birth was perfect. Yes. No, it was. I, I, yeah. I know. <laughs> I wish people could see us because our facial expressions are precious. You're, you have this big beaming ear to ear smile right now. It's great. It really warms my heart to see you smiling. Oh, good. Anyway, thank you for all you do. It's good work. I'm glad you are pushing to educate more birth workers in the ways of breached birth. Warmly, Kella, Kelly R. And uh, that brings me to uh, the... the um, Lesson of the day, which is in Latin pronounced, let's see, where is the Latin part? Rapitio mater studorium. <laughs> it sounds like um, something from Harry Potter. Well, rapitio sounds like what? Repetition. No. Repetition. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Mater is Latin for? I don't know. Don't <laughs> test me on Latin. Mother, mother. <laughs> mother, okay. And studi studiorium is for learning, study. Oh, okay, good. Her means repetition is the mother of all learning. Love it. Okay. It's an ancient, from the ancient Greek, and it, or I guess it's Latin, but it's the Romans who turned it into a proverb, right? But it was from Greek initially, uh, from the Athenians, um, that this is the best way to learn. So... Both of these last two letters about breach were because they took breach courses or they've been listening to us talk or other podcasts talk over and over again about it. And it gives them a sense of calm and mm -hmm. a sense of normalcy. Right. right. Yes. yes. So re repetition is the mother of all learning. Love it. All right. Quick break for our, our, our one sponsor right now, which is Bamboobies. Boobies. So tell us a little bit about your favorite products from Bamboobies. Yeah, so um, I love this company because it um, is environmentally conscious and bamboo is a great renewable resource. So um, that is something that I can really stand behind. And we've agreed that whoever comes on and is a sponsor, it is a company that we can you know, either we're using them personally or it's a company that we know that we could recommend to our clients. So um, they have lots of things, but the one that I love most is the um, bamboo heart-shaped nursing pads, which, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you've been a woman who's been nursing, you know about those embarrassing leaks that can happen if you're not using a, a nursing pad. And there's so, yeah, there's so many disposable things, disposable diapers and pads and all kinds of stuff that anything that you can do that's reusable is, is good for the environment. So yeah, they have the, the balms and the teas and the all kinds of stuff in their shop. So if you go to bamboobies.com, that's B-A-M-B-O-O-B-I-E-S.com and use the code word instinct, you get 40%. 40%. 
I know. I keep saying that, that, but it is like I've never seen a deal like yeah. that. All right. So 40% Take off. advantage of it. And there's no minimum order. So bamboobies.com, code word instincts. Thank you, bamboobies. Thank you, Stu. All right. There's our professional <laughs> sponsor spot for the day. <laughs> oh, I'm having so much fun. Okay. So um, getting ready to, um, oh, I have to do Jordan's letter because Jordan, I've been putting her off since forever. Sorry, and, Jordan. Yeah. So I promised I'd do this. I, I've been promising to do this letter for a long time. So let's, we're going to change the subject a little bit. I'm going to read this letter. Okay. This is from Jordan and she writes from Texas. I wanted to start out by saying that I really appreciate all the efforts that you and Bliss go through to deliver honest, factual, and empowering information to women all across the world. By the way, I do like when people start their letters that way, not because it makes me feel good, but because it means that we are doing exactly what they say. People don't make that stuff up. You yeah. know, most of them say, hey, you know, a-hole. <laughs> no, they, they don't. But it's really nice when people start that out because that means we're, we're doing a good job. Agreed. Okay. So I have a question that has pretty much always been on my mind. And I think that Bliss can probably give me some good stuff on this. It has to do with stereotypes against petite women mm -hmm. in pregnancy and birth. I think that other women would also benefit from this future as a future topic on the podcast. I don't think Jordan, we're going to do it as a topic. We're going to just kind of touch on it right now. But she says, as a woman who's four foot 11 and 95 pounds, I've often had people tell me that I will need a C-section. <laughs> mm, it's terrible. Right. So terrible. Right. And you, need a, and you probably need a vaccine to come to Thanksgiving too. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but I digress. <laughs> yes. It's still, it's still in my, you know, it's still in my head. I, I, you know, I can't help it. Or that I will have trouble giving birth because I am small. I find these comments to be extremely negative and disempowering. Would you yes. agree? Would you agree? That they're disempowering and extremely negative? Yes. I'm so sorry that people put that in your brain. It's just, it's terrible. Um, where, so, does this, where does the stereotyping come from, she says. I know that even doctors today will often look at a woman and look at the size of their husband and say, oh, you will definitely need a C-section. You're too small. Right. Well, the thing uh, I would point to, and that she sounds like a smart woman, so I may not be saying anything that she hasn't already thought of, is that there are very petite people all over the world. So in, in other cultures, you know, the majority of the population, let's say in Asia, um, are petite, short, um, and in a lot of Latin countries as well. So, you know, I always believe in a trial of labor. I, I was given that opportunity. I think I've told the story before on the podcast, but my midwife after my first delivery and had a forceps delivery told me that my pelvis, she thought my pelvis was slightly abnormal and I would never be able to have a home birth um, and would probably always need to deliver in the hospital. And I had somebody who believed in me and said, you know, let's do a trial of labor. And I ended up having my daughter in two and a half hours. So I'm a big fan of a trial of labor. If you end up needing to get a C-section after you know, a long labor and making that decision yourself, then, then I feel like you'd feel more empowered about it. Yeah, she says, she says well, again, we, we haven't been doing a dumb doctor dogma segment uh, for a long time, but there's so much in every, pretty much every one of these letters that has dumb doctor dogma. So I'm not gonna highlight it, but. She, when she says, oh, you will definitely need a C-section, you were too small. My, in my margin, I wrote my comment. I just wrote idiot. Um, 
All right. And then she says, there have been short, petite women since the beginning of time. Yeah. And I went, yeah, just like you said. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah, they're not extinct. Um, I think what happens sometimes is, is, again, doctors think that a baby is like made out of wood and a pelvis is made out of metal and mm -hmm. can't like change their shape or expand because I've heard so many times, you know, women in the Philippines, they have smaller babies than women, Filipino women in America, partly because the diet, partly because in the Philippines, it's almost all Filipino women marrying Filipino men. And here we have right. Filipino women marrying sometimes six foot two inch Caucasian men or black men. So there are differences, but the C-section rate in Filipino women in the United States, I don't think is higher, even though the average baby is probably a pound heavier than it is in the Philippines. So that's because, again, would be very unusual for nature to grow a baby inside somebody unless you're a French bulldog that won't come out. Right. Um, this is nothing new. I'm educated enough to know that these stereotypes started when women were very malnourished, had rickets or pelvic deformities. This is obviously not the case with me and I'm sure not the case with the majority of women nowadays. I don't understand how the average person can assume that somehow I'm not capable of natural birth, let alone medical professionals. How can I educate my family members and make them feel comfortable with my desire for an out-of-hospital birth? I put down there, sometimes that's a fool's errand. <laughs> yes. I don't mean to be sarcastic, but why do you need to, why do you need to, I mean, it'd be nice if they were on board, but if they're not on board, then they need, you need to compartmentalize them in a compartment that has nothing to do with the, your, your pregnancy or your labor or your, that, that area of your world. Well, I also think that if you're pointing to the fact that someone has told you ahead of time that you would need a cesarean because you're small, you're petite, um, even if you ended up needing a cesarean for something similar to that, um, which is made up, but let's say let's say you're having a conversation with your family about it, it's not an it's not an emergency. It just means that your labor is going to go really slow. And you may have a hard time pushing. You might have a, a, a long second stage, but that's not an urgent situation. So if you're advocating for yourself to be able to do an out-of-hospital birth, and you, you, you know, you, I, I agree with you, Stu. I think when people feel that way, there's nothing you're going to be able to say that's going to change their mind. You but can also, you can also try to inform them that you know what, even if I do end up with a C-section, the fact that my baby picked its own birthday and went into labor on its own and got to experience that hormonal cocktail of me and my baby communicating and got to experience the microbiome and got to experience all that oxytocin flowing back and forth. That's better for my baby. There's lots of data on that. And, you know, tell them to go look it up and read about the microbiome or whatever else. But, you know, that's, there's, there's things that uh, she could, Jordan could tell them that said, listen, mm -hmm. ah, this is what I want to do. And, and most people who do it are going to be successful anyway. She says, um, we are not even pregnant yet, and I'm debating on not even telling family members or friends that we would like to birth at a birth center. Yeah. I just can't imagine going through all the comments that I will get. Still, I want to be able to educate people when they make stereotypes based on what I look like. And I said, some people just can't be educated. You just, you can't. You can't fight illogic with logic. It doesn't work. And this is one of those personal choices. There are some, fam there are some families who are just deciding to deliver at home who don't tell anybody because they want to just keep that 
sacred for them and their family. And there are other people who are very outspoken about it and advocate and that becomes something that is really important to them to let people know that very smart women are educating themselves and making an informed choice. And I think that's important as well, but it's a very, it's a very personal choice, which direction you go. Right. So um, I hope that helps Jordan. And uh, yeah, I, I, again, I think that a lot of times people say stuff, they, they have projection. They think of this six foot guy and you're this tiny person and, and somehow that you're going to grow a baby in there. That's not going to come out. I mean, again, it's, it's kind of like the head getting stuck in the hole or the cord around the neck or whatever else they tend to just make stuff up. Yep. Trust nature. That's, you know, I go back to that one a lot. Like you said, your body is going to make a baby that fits. Okay. So here's the one that's going to, this, this is the last letter and it leads into today's case. So let's talk a little bit. This is from Jesse and Jesse's in Australia. All right. All right. I'm, I'm going to skip all the parts. She gave us a really, she gave me a really good insight what's going on in Australia, but we don't really have time for that today. So we'll just yeah. talk about her letter. She says, we're um, so worldly. She writes me on the subject of twins. She says, hey guys, that must be you and me, I guess. Hey guys, <laughs> love it. <laughs> uh, I'm so grateful to have learned about you. I'm on your website for the first time and I'm about 15 weeks pregnant with fraternal twins. I've had two non-medicated vaginal births with a midwife and strive to have a non-medicated birth of my twin babies. I live in Australia and have been directed towards an OB who I believe has experienced delivering twins without intervention or much intervention <laughs> in parentheses. Mm -hmm. I'm chasing the twin birth stories that Dr. Stu has been part of to get an idea of how they can unfold with the right support. Funny how this letter just came at the right time. You know, it's just... Could you direct me towards some of these stories? I did have a look through the podcast episodes and found a couple related to twins, but I feel I must have missed a lot. I hope you don't mind me asking for this kind of help. No, we don't. Thanks so much for your time and resources and the opportunity to sign up for the consultation membership. That's amazing. Thank you, Jesse. Um, so I wrote back to you, Jesse, thanks for checking in to explore all your options. I have a few stories on the in the testimonial section of the, on the twin section of my website. I also have a list of some of the twin moms who have chosen their care with me and my team. And if you reach, and I, and if you reach out to them, I'm sure they would be share their story and insight with you. Hoping this is a bit helpful. I, I have what's called my twins moms list. These mm -hmm. are women who've had uh, twins with me and they've waived confidentiality and they're willing to talk to anybody and everybody about their experiences. Not every one of them had a vaginal delivery. Some of them ended up being transported uh, either and had a vaginal delivery in the hospital or a cesarean, but they all are willing to talk about their experiences. Um, so anybody who's interested in that, I can give out that list. And then um, Sarah, I don't, on our, on Dr. Stu's podcast, our old podcast, uh, Sarah Piera came yep. and I don't know which number it was, but you could look for that episode. She came and shared her experience. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, maybe we can look back and maybe uh, Emily can find it and put it in the show notes. Um, but there is one on, uh, I don't remember what we titled it either, but there's a, there, there's a great twin story. But here, speaking of twin stories, and it just so happens the mother's in this name, mother in this twin story is also named Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so this is uh, Sarah and Peter, and they've given me permission to talk a little bit about their... Um, story. So they were living overseas 
um, in Africa, actually. And they were working there. They're Americans. They were working there in agriculture and engineering. And uh, they were, they have family in Southern California. Um, they have family in Palos Verdes and they have a, a family up in Carpinteria. And they wanted to come to America to have their baby. They found out they were having twins. So they Google searched um, twin home birth in LA. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess, I guess pretty much I'm it. You're uh, it. Yeah. So uh, they, so they, they contacted me. We met on zoom. We had a really nice conversation zoom, very thoughtful people, very lots of questions, taking notes, all that stuff. They moved back um, to Southern California at around 35 weeks. Their due date was December 10th. So again, this podcast is coming out delayed, but their due date was December 10th. We're, we're talking just after Thanksgiving, so people can figure out the dating. Um, the twins that were um, Breach, first twin, uh, they did not know the sex of either twin, uh, and the second twin was Vertex. So, and they stayed that way the entire time that I've known, uh, that I knew them, which was only for about two and a half weeks mm -hmm. because they came here at 35 weeks, which is when I told them that if they, if they came before that, I couldn't deliver them. But if they got to 35 weeks and they were, they were here that we could deliver them. Okay. So that's my sort of part of my standard. I think I've talked about that before. So we met at the office and they, they were planning for the birth in, in their beach house, their grandpa's beach house in Carpinteria. And they were staying down in Palos Verdes and they said, well, let's, we're going to stay down in Palos Verdes till after Thanksgiving. And, it, and by Thanksgiving, they're going to be 38 weeks. And I said, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I, think, I think you guys should move up now. <laughs> so actually, they moved up about, I don't know, four or five days before they uh, went into labor. <laughs> and on, uh, on November 23rd at uh, 7 p.m., I get a text that said water broke. You know, yeah. so she was 37 and five sevenths weeks at that time. Okay. And they were not planning again to move up to, but to Carpinteria, but they were up in Carpinteria and we had just done a home visit on them two days earlier. So I drove to Santa Barbara on Monday of that week to do a home visit. And then we drove to Santa Barbara on the night of the delivery. And then we drove to Santa Barbara on the postpartum visit. So I did three back and forth to Santa Barbara in six days. Which is about 90 minutes for you? Uh, actually, with no traffic, like at midnight, mm -hmm. was about an hour and five minutes. Okay. About 60, it's about 66 miles because it's not all the way to Santa Barbara. It's only to Carpinteria, which is south of Santa Barbara. Okay, yeah. Anyway, so uh, labor began to pick up around midnight. So we all slept over there. And uh, we had, we, we got on the team, we also got a local Santa Barbara midwife because I always try to do that. And so yeah. the Santa Barbara midwife was very willing to be involved. And then also the other person on the team this time was gonna be Dr. Flores. So it was me and Dr. Flores and a Santa Barbara midwife. Um, and then we had also, she had a doula, which was great, a Santa Barbara doula. So when we get there, she's already in the tub and she's making these grunting sounds. This is about midnight, one midnight, one o'clock in the morning. She's making these grunting sounds, but there's no meconium. There's no blood and meconium, by the way, for people that are just hearing us, remember baby A is breech. So 
Um, meconium would be something you'd expect to see in a breech baby if they're getting close to coming out. Because and, they, and their water has already broken. Yeah, and the water broke uh, at 7 p.m., so we knew that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The thing about breech first twins is that the reason that it's scary for people who don't know anything is because of this famous drawing of the of baby's heads being interlocked, where mm -hmm. B's head gets interlocked with A's head. And up until a couple of years ago, I had been doing, I had searched literature and I found no evidence that that ever occurred. And then it happened to me once before. But now I'm an expert in, <laughs> in releasing uh, interlocked heads, but I was really not concerned. This, this anatomy was completely different. This baby B was not anywhere near where it looked like it was gonna interfere with baby A at all. So I was not concerned about that, but it was always in the back of my mind, of course. Um, so she's in the tub most of the night and nothing's really changing. We finally get her out of the tub in the morning and the contractions have slowed and the sun comes up and we get her out. She takes a nap in bed with her husband there. They go to the bedroom and they, and they get in bed and they take a nap and um, we, the part of the team, we leave one person behind, part of it, we go out for coffee, all right? We get back around, I don't know, 9.30 in the morning, and she's up on the toilet around 10.15, and the calmest, sweetest voice is, Dr. Fishbein, I think the cord is hanging out. Oh, God. <laughs> and I think, and I'm in the other room, and I go, are you sure it's not a foot? She goes, no, I think it's the cord. So I go in the bathroom and sure enough, there's about uh, 12 inch, six inches down, six inches back up loop of cord that's hanging out. Okay. Now, in normal situations, this would be obviously, and we were excited about it initially uh, because a cord prolapse can be really dangerous if you're not completely dilated. Um, it's less dangerous, by the way, in babies that are complete or incomplete breach. And this is well known in the literature because there's room. It's not like when the head comes down and is squishing the cord, there's, there's room for the cord to fall down. And on ultrasound two days earlier, the cord was nowhere down low. So it was just one of those things. I think she was on the toilet and she was trying to pee and she hadn't peed all night long and she was trying to pee and she couldn't pee. And then all of a sudden the cord comes out. So we carry, we get her back into onto the couch, which is nearby, which we have all set up because the tub and the couch, it's the house was designed, it's a great house right on the ocean. Lovely to have a long birth there. Too bad it wasn't, it was nighttime, but it's a great place to have a birth. Um, and the, I can feel the cord, the cord's pulsating at 140. So I get my ultrasound, the baby, I mean, I already had my ultrasound, I checked the baby's heart rate is fine. I do a vaginal exam, the baby, she's complete, complete and plus two, there's a leg there. The other leg is up a little bit. So it is probably in the butts there. So I can feel it's an incomplete breach. But I look at her belly and she has a bladder that is huge. And you can just see it because she's otherwise really thin. So I think the baby's fine. I'm gonna drain her bladder before I do anything for her. So we get a Red Robinson catheter, put in her bladder. Unfortunately, the French size is really small and it's, it takes like- Forever. Eight to 10 minutes to drain 1600 cc's from yeah. her bladder. Yeah. So we get that out and then um, everybody's, uh, the midwife had gone to another birth. So it's just me and Dr. Flores and the, and the doula and my student there. And- uh, Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Um, so do you just leave the cord? Yeah, just- You just well, leave it. I knew she was complete. My plan was to drain the bladder and then pull the baby out. 
Okay. Right. But you don't well, like try and put the cord back in or you just there would, no, there would no, you would never try to do that. Um, if she's only four or five centimeters dilated, then we would call an ambulance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, a, a funny part of the story was that the midwife was at another birth at apparently a multip and she just delivered it. She was at the house about 20 minutes away. And I think either my student or Dr. Flores or the doula called her and said, um, we have a cord prolapse. Dr. Fishbein wants you here now. And then when and later on, when I talked to the midwife, she said, well, if he has a cord prolapse, why does he want me there now? I mean, yeah. what am I going to do? Yeah. But she didn't realize yeah. that, that, it, you know, it was, it was, a, I could get deliver the baby. So we, I did a breech extraction on the twin and it was really easy. It was a very straightforward, easy breech extraction came right out. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so um, we, I guess the baby came out, had, had some tone, some respiratory, but not great. So we gave it three rescue breaths and then the baby picked up right away at half guards of six and eight. And eventually when we waited a couple hours later, weighed six pounds, three ounces. Um, and all this time, baby B was totally fine. Right. So we weren't worried about baby B. So after about 45 minutes of baby A being on mom's belly, um, cord had stopped pulsating, baby was fine, but she, she didn't have a single contraction that she could feel in 40 minutes after the first baby came out, which of course, you know, my thing, you've heard me say it before that the longer the twin to twin interval goes, the more likely you are to get a stressed out baby B and you're more likely to get a postpartum hemorrhage. So at that point we had a conversation and I took my ultrasound and I looked and the baby had a compound presentation and I could feel it with my fingers. There was bag of waters was there and I could feel the head and I could feel a hand sitting right on top of the head. So with my ultrasound in one hand, I figured out which arm it was. And I was able with my other hand to then push the baby's arm and just slide it back around over the head and down to the side so that the head was now up against it. And I had uh, Dr. Flores give a little bit of fundal pressure just to keep the head up against it so the arm didn't come back down. Then I broke the bag of waters on baby B and the heart rate was fine, but she had no contractions. We tried a couple of pushes with nothing and nothing happened. So we put a vacuum on and baby B came right out and baby B had APGARs of eight and nine. And baby was obviously very low. What's that? Baby was very low at that point. If well, you, you know, it cheat a little bit, but you know, okay. you know, it was easy to get the vacuum on. It's mm -hmm. off a couple of times because she wasn't far enough down on the bed. This is another thing where people at home aren't going to be doing vacuum. So it's not something you need to know, but you need to be able to have them on the end of the bed because the baby was OP. And in order to get the baby to come down, you have to sort of pull down toward the floor. And when they're right on the bed, you can't, you, you hit the bed. So yeah. we should, we should have moved her down. And then that was, then it made it really easy. And the baby rotated all the way around. You could just watch the head rotate to OA and then came out. There was no nuchal cord. It was very straightforward. Maybe went right on mom's belly and, and that was great. And then uh, let's see, that was at about 11.22. So 52 minutes between, between twins. And then about another almost 30 minutes went by and the placenta hadn't come out yet. So, oh, we did, we did do active management after the second twin was out. We did give a shot of Pitocin into the mom's thigh. And I wanted to say that to my, to, um, about, about Pitocin, it's, 
it is indicated for post uh, for prevention of postpartum hemorrhage, and it's indicated for medical induction. But I remind people that it's off label for elective induction, and it's off label for augmentation. And if people go back and listen to our off label podcast, they can hear more about that. And they gave her the pitocin. Finally, the placenta. And we, there was a gush of blood, and there was a lot of blood in the membrane. You know how the bag of waters sometimes will come out in front of the placenta, and it was really filled with blood. So we got the placenta out and did a rigorous bimanual exam. And was, you know, the bleeding was moderate, but I was a little concerned because her uterus had been so distended and hadn't really contracted after baby eight came out that we were gonna have acne. So I went right ahead and gave her 800, mic, uh, mill, microgram, 800 micrograms of mesoprostol rectally. Mm -hmm. um, and we continued to keep an eye on that. And then everybody got busy doing things with the baby. And about maybe 15 minutes later, we went back and Dr. Flores has smaller hands than me. So she volunteered to do the double check and milked out probably six, 800 cc's of clot. Mm. Um, even though, and, and so what we ended up doing in the long run is we ended up giving her an IV. We gave her some uh, transexamic acid, a thousand, a thousand milligrams of that and kept, Fund, uh, kept her fundus massaged a lot. We actually ended up putting a Foley catheter in her because we didn't want her getting out of bed. We estimated the blood loss and we probably underestimated it at 1800 cc's, which is a lot of blood, but her vital signs remained stable as you know, and we kept her in bed for 24 hours. And we came back, I came back the next morning with the midwife and we took out the Foley and she was able to um, you know, pee on a commode and, and she was stable and we had donor milk. Oh, this is a this is a fantastic story, by the way. We hadn't had time to get frozen donor milk, which I do for most of my twins. Mm -hmm. But we had the we had the, a, a better option. We had Dr. Flores. <laughs> with the twelve hours that we were hanging around her house, Dr. Flores has these pumps on her breast, which you can hardly tell she's wearing. I don't remember what they're willow pumps or something like that. Uh huh. Yeah. So she was taking the milk and putting it in the freezer. That's amazing. So, I love that. And been, and I thought they, you were going to say for a minute that she just nursed the babies. Well, she did. she did nurse the babies, but we wanted, we know that milk doesn't come in for several days. We know that when you're anemic, you, you may have a slower production of milk. We know that you yeah. have colostrum. We want the bonding. We want the skin to skin. So yeah. we ended up do. they did a little bit of supplemental nursing over the next 24 hours. Not very much, but enough. And the babies did great. And we saw the babies the next day. And, um, you know, we didn't weigh them again because it really had only been 24 hours. But um, the color was good. They were rigorous. They checked out great. And they were in heaven. The, they had an overnight doula, stayed all night long, and checked in with us regularly. Her husband got nine hours of sleep. <laughs> they, the, he, well, he needed it. He really did. Yeah. He was so supportive. And that he yeah. was supercharged for the next day. And mama, you know, mama is going to be needing a lot of help and just with yeah. in general. Yeah. So, um, so it was, it was, we were able to give them the birth that they wanted. And think of all the things that happened here. I mean, the first twin breach. Right. Prolapse cord. Yeah. Um, a compound presentation. Mm -hmm. a vacuum delivery. And a postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah, I mean that wasn't that wasn't a uh, a birth where nothing happened and the babies just fell out. That you uh, you had a lot to do there. 
Yeah, the other twin birth that we talked about briefly, the the babies just fell out. (laughs) Yeah. They were like eight minutes apart, head down, head down. Boom, boom. Uh, Which is again, always great when that happens, but it's and again, you know, it's multi multi women versus primiparous women. Right. Things are things are different, yeah. but just you know, and again, this is not something that I'm saying to people that they should do this at home. I'm just saying that that there should be options for people to do this in the hospital, and there aren't. Mm-hmm. And when there aren't options in the hospital, people are going to choose other options. And I'm grateful that they trusted us. I'm grateful for the team. The mother was amazing. She let me do what I needed to do. It's never really comfortable to have a, you know, I didn't have to reach very far up to get the breach, but still it's not very, it's uncomfortable. And then she had a vacuum after that. And she had a first degree tear that we repaired. Um, So uh, yeah. That's a that's a a twin story. There you go. Doctor Stu tells a twin story. <laughs> yeah. That can be the title today. Yeah, you know it's really interesting because because we talked a little bit before how you said you're so you try to not show your stress and stuff like that. I have to tell you that you know I don't want to blame it on getting older, but after everything was settled and, and, the, and the bleeding was calmed down and everything seemed to be okay, I just had to like sit down. Yeah, yeah. Did it feel different not having your normal team? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I, I, uh, I miss going to, to births with you. Well, the Santa Barbara midwife was tremendous. Good. All right. And Dr. Flores is a doctor, so she's good at some stuff, but she's not like, thinking ahead like a midwife thinks ahead. And she's relatively new at that too. Mm-hmm. And then my student is really new, All right? So, and I only had one student there. My other student was out of town. So it was, it was yeah, we were, we were, um, we had skilled people there, but yeah. it we didn't have a team that had worked together before. Right, and it does make a difference when you have a complication like that to have people that, you know, you don't have to really talk a lot. You just kind of, you go, you do the things that you know you do when we are in those kind of situations. So. Right. I think the thing that struck, that sticks with me the most is the calm little voice from the bathroom. <laughs> I think the cord is hanging out. Or something yeah, she, like she didn't know enough about it to be worried, which is nice, actually. Yeah. And you know what? The toilet does that sometimes. And Thankfully, we knew what to do, and thankfully, she was completely dilated. Uh, mm-hmm. But just to remember and remind people again, that cord prolapse, while rare, is less of a problem when you have an incomplete breach or a complete breach um, than when you have a frank breach or a vertex presentation, because there's room between the legs and stuff for the cord to, to fall. That's why it falls down, but yeah. it also getting compressed as well. It's obviously we're, we're trained to like freak out about it. And surprisingly it was, you know, I'll, I'll have to rehash with everybody else in the room, but I, I don't think that there was a big freak out. I mean, we got her on the bed. We heard the heartbeat was fine. And then everything was like, well, let's drain her bladder. I mean, I did a vaginal exam and I knew what I was going to do, but I felt like, my God, she's got this huge bladder. I've got to drain this bladder. It's going to be really uncomfortable for her. So we did. 
And sometimes that happens in labor where you get urinary retention and you got to keep an eye out for that. Yeah. And it, it's uncomfortable, but it also can, um, can affect descent of the baby when your bladder is that full. So, yeah. Yeah. And it can, it can cause uterine acne too. Exactly. So good job. Very exciting. Yeah. And, and, they're, and they're so cute. And it was so 6'3 and 7'3 at 37 and 5 7 weeks. Excellent size babies. So B was bigger than A. That's not common. Uh, yeah. Oh, and by the way, A was a girl and B was a boy. So that's, that's sort of common. Then boys tend to sometimes be, well, not always, but sometimes be bigger. Certainly yeah. with our other Sarah, there was a, there was like almost a four pound difference. Yes. Yeah. Remember that? And they're turning five. I know. I just saw their picture. They just had a birthday. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Well, um, anything else on your mind? Um, no, Any I'm looking forward events? to seeing you soon. I'm really looking forward to seeing you soon. And, and um, we'll do some live stuff together. Yes, and, great. Uh, and I hope everybody who's, by the time this comes out, it's going to be almost Christmas season. I hope everybody has a good Christmas. I hope people can work things out with their families and, and not let this divide us. We cannot, can't have this, right? There are bigger things in the world than this. So um yeah be proactive if this is a divisive thing then make alternative plans because i can tell you it was pretty painful yeah i'm sorry i know I look, forward, I look forward to seeing you soon and we'll have a movie night and and share yeah, a meal we're dragging out our goodbye again we always tend to drag out our goodbye. <laughs> so let's just say until next time thanks for listening guys this has been i think podcast number 237 uh, of the Birthing Instincts podcast. Okay. Adios. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 